It's essential to insist that doing inclusive history is actually just doing history and doing history well. You know, it's easy to work in broad brushstrokes when we talk about institutions, whether we're talking about the U.S. Congress or the educational system or or farmers or whatever. But I, I actually believe in the individual stories, right? LGBTQ or queer type of questions can lead you into the stories that are challenging to just people's general assumptions about the past. And that is rich and beautiful and benefits everyone. You have to connect with people who have names. You have to recognize the humanity of individuals and families when they have names. So when we talk to our visitors about uh, the Hemings, the Hubbards, the Hughes, the Gillettes, it really puts a fine point on the idea that Thomas Jefferson enslaved a great number of people. This is Reframing History, a limited series from the American Association for State and Local History. I'm Christy Coleman, Executive Director of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. And I'm Jason Steinhauer, Global Fellow at the Wilson Center and author of History Disrupted. In this six-part series, we're speaking to history practitioners from around the country about how they communicate the role and value of history to the public. To help frame this conversation, we're using a new report on history communication called Making History Matter. This research-backed report offers specific language that history communicators can use to bridge the gap between how we talk about history and how the public understands history work. You can download the report at aaslh.org slash reframinghistory. This is episode four, communicating the value of inclusive history. I think we can all agree that inclusive history matters. At the same time, I'm guessing we all have stories of pushback against attempts to tell a fuller story of American history. The framework's researchers wanted to understand the shared thinking patterns behind that pushback. So they interviewed a diverse sample of the public, and here's what they found. Many people, particularly those from dominant groups, tend to treat history centered on white men as the neutral, depoliticized history, the stuff that should be taught in schools and put on tests. People with this view often saw narratives about historically oppressed groups, such as women or people of color or LGBTQ Americans, as extra, optional, additional material that isn't necessary for people outside those specific groups. Interviewees from historically oppressed groups typically recognized that this is an unfair double standard, but they expressed doubt as to whether this could change in any meaningful way in our schools or society. So, we have the scenario where many people assume dominant groups will inevitably be the focus of history, whether or not they think that it's fair or truthful. Definitely not ideal. The good news is that researchers found an existing recognition among many participants that having multiple perspectives makes the historical record more accurate. In focus group-like settings, they tested ways to use that foundation to diffuse backlash to inclusive history. Long story short, the solution here, according to the report, is to use concrete, location-specific, solutions-focused examples. To help us explore this recommendation and what it looks like in practice, we talked to three public historians, Estevan Rael-Gavez, Naya Bates, 
and Susan Ferentinos. We asked each of them the same set of questions, starting with the why. Why is it important to tell inclusive histories? Why should everyone learn a diverse story of America? My name is Esteban Rael Galvez. I am the former New Mexico State Historian, former Senior Vice President at the National Trust for Historic Preservation. I'm now a writer, consultant, and I'm about to launch a major initiative called Native Bound Unbound. It's important because every single one of our stories matters. Whether you are a pope or a president, or whether you're like my father, who was a farmer, rancher, sheep herder, those stories that are, reflect the more mundane things that happen in cycles every single day, the story of my mother, an elementary school teacher teaching in northern New Mexico, those are the individuals whose stories get lost. But why should they matter any less than great politicians or pontiffs? And from my standpoint, I always come back to some of the core values and teachings I learned growing up where I grew up, that my grandmother would set the table and invite people to tell stories. It was metaphorically, it was a round table where everyone's perspective, no matter your age, really mattered. And I think I learned that early on, that she would turn to me, this elder who was raising me in her 90s, who had been born in the, the previous century, and yet she valued my perspective as a little six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old. And for me, I think that taught me why everyone's perspective matters. The stakes were less then at a kitchen table. But I think the stakes are so much greater now in terms of civic discourse and, and what, how people get taught, what they get taught, and why that matters to, to an individual's self-identity and formation and really recognizing why that matters. Next, we asked the same question of public historian and architectural historian, Naya Bates. Naya was the director of the Getting Word African-American Oral History Project at Monticello for five years before leaving to pursue a PhD at Princeton. You know, I think people are engaged in history. The public is engaged in history, perhaps for all the wrong reasons, right? Our current discourse on history is about public monuments, critical race theory, and what it looks like in American classrooms. There's a lot of pushback against doing inclusive history. There's a lot of pushback in broadening our historical narratives. And I think it's because our ideas of who we are as citizens, as people who live in the United States and participate in a certain process of governance, those things are so innately tied to who we believe we are and our identity. Um, and it's polarizing because people have so many different feelings about who is American, who can be American, uh, what will America be in the future? And this is all tied to our historical narratives in the past. And I think it's critical that people consider the practice of storytelling and capturing history as a practice that is done to preserve and protect our futures. And if, if we don't do inclusive history that doesn't show a variety of different people as historical actors, as people who have a rightful claim to citizenship, to democracy, to freedom, 
then we do an injustice by giving a false impression that it's possible to move forward without certain groups of people. Uh, and that really is dangerous. So in Jefferson's records, there are only six or seven surnames of the enslaved community that were documented. And through this oral history project, we've been able to get up to 23. The more work that we do, the more families we're able to identify, the more people we're able to reconnect with this place, and the more people we're able to reconnect with each other. You know, the Monticello story is not different than other plantations. Uh, slavery at Monticello was equally brutal as slavery elsewhere. Families at Monticello were separated in order to fund Jefferson's lifestyle, in order to provide things like French imported wine and Chinese imported decorative items for the house. The real cost of that is, is the lives of the enslaved community. You know, every idea Thomas Jefferson ever had, every contribution he made to this country was through the lens of his life as a slaveholder. The work that he's doing is in spaces that are literally heated by the labor of enslaved people who are putting uh, firewood in those fireplaces. Uh, and so without the work of Monticello, visitors would have a one-sided view of Monticello, one that doesn't accurately reflect anything about Thomas Jefferson or his life. And finally, Susan Ferentinos, a public history consultant and LGBTQ interpretation expert, answered our why question with a great example of why inclusive history makes for better history. When you start looking for LGBTQ history, it also shifts the perspective in a way that you see other difference. It goes beyond LGBTQ history, and I come to it in part from an experience I had at the Woodlands, a former country estate of William Hamilton. William Hamilton lived in Philadelphia during the founding era, and he never married. And so, and he had an extremely close relationship with his African-American valet who was not enslaved. They had an extremely close relationship, which LGBTQ historians know to investigate further <laughs> when these circumstances arise. So the historic site hired a researcher with expertise in revolutionary era history of sexuality to do more digging and see what she could find. And unexpectedly, what she found was an illegitimate son. So that, that of course, does not mean anything about Hamilton's sexual desire, but it definitely complicated the story. And then we were also considering other aspects of his life, which is he had two nieces who had been orphaned and he took them into his family and he raised them. And then they went on to never marry as well. And so that brings in blended family, which is not at all unusual in the 18th century, but isn't talked about as much. It's not, and it's certainly not talked about in that way. And it's very interesting to me that there are some things that are just considered unchanging or unworthy of investigation. Marriage is one of them. How sexuality is expressed and what it means to people, like what a family means, what a normal household would have looked like. You know, there's a lot of assumptions that those that those are not worthy of interrogating. So I really like 
that even if it's not a specifically like smoking gun LGBTQ story, that LGBTQ or queer type of questions can lead you into finding the stories that are challenging to just people's general assumptions about the past. And that is rich and beautiful and benefits everyone. So one of the things, one of the key threats through all three of our guests here is the idea that a more inclusive history really does benefit everyone. But clearly one of the challenges here is this this false idea that including the histories of women or people of color or LGBTQI people is somehow an add-on and not key to the story of us, right? And and that's really problematic. And we run into that in our museums and sites quite a bit. And so, you know, we have to be mindful, even with this particular study, that while every effort was made to include those different voices to help us understand as a field, there are elements of this research also that that still centers on whiteness. So we have to be kind of mindful of that as we're thinking about this work and why moving forward becomes so much more important. Jason, what do you think about that? I think you can't tell an accurate story of the United States of America without a diversity of voices. And I think that is a message that I believe Americans agree with if it can get through. And so I think part of the challenge that we all face is how do we get that message through in the various contexts that we're operating in? Because I think people, when put to them like that, I think people do realize that, yes, diversity of voices, multiplicity of perspectives does give us a more well-rounded, holistic picture of this thing we call the United States. So our job as history communicators is to impart that message, and then find ways to invite people into that process. At least that's kind of how I see it. One of the examples that I can give of how problematic um, centering on a traditional narrative can be in terms of helping us understand a greater richness is that, you know, when I was working at the American Civil War Museum, for example, you know, this is a story, the American Civil War has so many challenges in the way that it's remembered by the public. And most of that narrative, quite frankly, was framed and pushed out by the losing side, you know, by people who were more Confederate-centric. And then these narratives of sort of reconciliation started to take form, and we started to hear things like, you know, this was a war of brother against brother and, you know, states' rights and all these other kind of things. And, and really, it leaves out considerable agency of not just people who were formerly enslaved or of African descent, but it leaves out of the narrative the people who joined the fight. You know, I think about some of the Chinese Americans from California who make their way east to serve and to volunteer. I think about Irishmen who are fighting for this greater ideal of American democracy and make their way here and form their own units and regiments among immigrants that are already here. I think about the roles of women, not just making socks or keeping the home fires burning, which is this lovely little trope, but the women who are actively involved in spying. I, I think about all of those things to help us understand that this was, with varying motivations, people shifted their 
position multiple times during the course of the war. There was no solid line. You know, families were split, but that split would float back and forth. And so I think that, you know, our ability to to help our guests understand that in a very different way not only impacted the national conversation coming out of the sesquicentennial, I know that every person that walks through not only sees themselves in that story in ways they simply didn't before. And we had a few little surveys that showed that they felt a greater connection and a greater responsibility in a civic sense. Well, I spent a good portion of my early career working on subjects related to the Holocaust in the museum settings. And I think there's a tendency for visitors to think about the Jewish experience related to the Holocaust solely through a victim lens and what was done to us. And one of the things we did at the Museum of Jewish Heritage when I worked there was mount a couple of shows that tried to flip that narrative on its head. We did a show about American Jewish soldiers in the Second World War, uh, looking at the 550,000 Jews who served in the American military in a whole range of different positions, including women who served in combat support roles. And it was an eye-opening show for many people who maybe thought only about Jewish participation in the war from a European perspective, or only thought about Jewish participation in the U.S. military from a chief warrant officer or quartermaster corps perspective. And then a few years later, the museum actually mounted an exhibition about Jewish resistance during the war, talked about partisan fighters, and talked about moments of both armed resistance as well as unarmed resistance in the camps, outside the camps, in the ghettos. And I think that's part of how we expand the view and include more perspectives in the story is by mounting shows that go against people's preconceived ideas or that dispel mythologies that have taken root for one way or another. And those experiences can be very enriching for visitors when they're done well and when people are invited into those processes. Agreed. Yeah, that's a wonderful example as well. Mm -hmm. So we've just been chatting about specific use stories to draw visitors into more inclusive, nuanced histories. And that brings us back to the report which tells us to be specific with our examples when talking about history and making a case. Grounding examples in specific places and cases makes it harder for people to deny the value of marginalized histories because they'd have to deny the value of learning about a specific set of individuals in a specific place. By connecting the idea of inclusive history to specific examples, it makes it much harder for audiences to escape into general worries about national pride or a quote-unquote objective history. We ask each of our guests to talk about specificity in their work and how it changes the way people understand history. Here's Estevan Rael Galvez again. You know, it's easy to work in broad brushstrokes when we talk about institutions, whether we're talking about the U.S. Congress or the educational system or, or farmers or whatever. But I, I actually believe in the individual stories, right? So I, I love the specificity as a slavery scholar in particular. Given this whole notion of point-counterpoint that the report addresses, I think that, that when we start talking about slavery, there's a, there's a resistance to that. 
without understanding that in individuals had lives, right? And when we start talking about an individual life, Rosario Romero, who lived in Taos, New Mexico, who was a Navajo woman who was captured in the early 1860s and taken into this household, who, who watched her other children, her two of her sons, be killed and her family be killed in that captive raid and then taken into a uh, household in a village that wasn't her own and having to serve in a situation that was alien to her, but also was dehumanizing, we actually start to reveal her humanity. And in revealing her specific humanity, we actually start to understand why her story matters. And here's Naya Bates answering the same question with examples from her work at Monticello, where they recorded the oral histories of descendants of individuals enslaved by Jefferson. There is a perception that when you come to a historic site like Monticello, that the history that you're going to get is that of American exceptionalism. It's a history of Thomas Jefferson and his family, and it is not one uh, that includes indigenous people or enslaved African-Americans. And we've really tried over the past three decades or so to challenge those assumptions that visitors brought in. And what we've had a great deal of success with doing is introducing these individual um, and very specific narratives about enslaved people and enslaved families at Monticello. Um, And I should say that Monticello is one of the best documented plantations in the country. And we do have an extensive amount of written information about certain individuals within the enslaved community uh, that were able to tell these really engaging and exciting individual narratives and use them as representative of the experience of slavery as a whole. And and in so doing, um, we position Jefferson as being part of this community, that nothing Jefferson did for this country, whether it was writing the Declaration of Independence or designing the state capitol building in Richmond, all of these things are done uh, through the lens of his life as a slaveholder and as someone who is surrounded by a, a community that is predominantly Black. And how do we capture that? I mean, really, it just means populating the space with enslaved individuals so that people are not able to visit Monticello and see uh, just the story of Thomas Jefferson, that instead they're forced to grapple with the realities of his life as a slaveholder. You have to connect with people who have names. You have to recognize the humanity of individuals and families when they have names. So when we talk to our visitors about uh, the Hemings, the Hubbards, the Hughes, the Gillettes, it really puts a fine point on the the idea that Thomas Jefferson enslaved a great number of people, over 600 individuals that he owned throughout his lifetime. And so when we're able to say that an enslaved woman by the name of Frances Hearn cooked in the kitchen, then you have to imagine what her life is like. You have to imagine her children. You have to imagine uh, what it's like for her to be sold at Thomas Jefferson's death. There's just a, a number of things that come with identifying and recognizing Uh, the humanity of enslaved people. Um, So as much as possible, we try to use parallel language when we talk about people. So if you hear someone speak about Thomas Jefferson, you will also hear them speak about Sally Hemings so that it's an even exchange, right? Rarely will you hear someone say, for instance, Jefferson did X, Y, Z and Sally did this, right? Because that's not an even exchange. It implies a familiarity that we don't have with these enslaved people. So 
if we're going to use a first and last name for Thomas Jefferson, then in the same instance, we'll use a first and last name for enslaved people. And that's just to make it as even as possible. Even though we know that there is a gross imbalance of power in the relationships between these people, we can give them the dignity and the respect um, by using full names wherever possible. The next step in the report is to connect your examples to place. When they tested this suggestion in a focus group, the researchers found that local examples helped to ward off abstract worries about a quote-unquote liberal agenda. When we asked Susan Ferentinos for her insights on how place-based history can help us tell more inclusive stories, she explained what a huge difference local LGBTQ history could make in the lives of vulnerable youth. I think that there is an assumption that LGBTQ identity is a predominantly urban expression. That bias in the stories we tell, the urban bias, makes it seem like queer identity is something that those folks do out there, not here. A very common experience of coming into one's LGBTQ identity is feelings of isolation and feelings that you're the only person who has ever felt this way. And while that is certainly less common now that we have representation and that the internet is available so one can, if one is looking, (laughs) they can find a variety of perspectives and information. It is also in many places or in many subcultures, very easy to believe for a young person, yeah, 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 but not here. Like I'm the only person here in this town who has ever (laughs) thought this way or in this church or what have you. And it is so important for such individuals to see representation of themselves in the local context And I would hope that it would also be so important for everyone else (laughs) in that place to realize that because part of what makes things so hard for LGBTQ curious or identifying youth is uh, bullying or the misunderstanding of the adults in their life. And so it's not just about reassuring individuals who might identify this way. It's partly about intervening with other prejudices that are shaping young people's lives because LGBTQ youth, they're three times as likely as other adolescents to seriously contemplate suicide. I know that that particular argument might seem out in the weeds, but it's, I mean, to me, it's, it's at the very top of the list of why this work is so important. To create a sense of togetherness and cohesiveness as a species, honestly, but also as, as a nation, as a country, then the understanding of a range of experiences and identities is an important place to start. And that is very important work for museum professionals that live in an area where that richness of experience and that diversity of experience isn't super obvious on the surface. You know, it's worth the extra effort to find those stories in those places. Here's what Naya Bates had to say about the power of place-based history. 
For me, I think I was drawn to place-based history because in studying enslaved African-Americans and their families, traditional archives don't always get us there. And for me, studying place-based history is a way to fill those gaps. There are a lot of experiential things that can be filled in by understanding where someone lived and worked, by being in the space, by um, using your imagination to reconnect with the circumstances that an enslaved person may have experienced in a space. And so um, in my work as an architectural historian, I've really valued um, the work of archaeologists and the work of other architectural historians in putting together the worlds that enslaved people and their descendants created. Um, And what does it mean to then self-determine space, even through oppressive forces like uh, slavery and Jim Crow? So I think that's why it's always powerful. Everyone knows what it's like to live somewhere, right? (laughs) No matter where that somewhere is. And uh, it gives us a point, a jumping off point for um, creating histories that connect with personal experiences. And I think using those personal experiences as a way in breaks down some of the resistance to dealing with more challenging topics. So for instance, I'll say in my work as an architectural historian, uh, working in Black rural communities that were established after slavery, you know, I really sought to uncover the ways that a population who was formerly enslaved organized their communities at the first instance where they had the power and the ability to self-determine what their living arrangements would be, who they would build with, what those communities would look like, and the form and shape that these places would take on the land. And so recovering that, I think, is a step toward recovering some of the things that um, perhaps wouldn't be visible in more traditional archival sources and have come down through oral histories in these families, through cultural practices, things like homegoing celebrations that mark end of life in the Black community, or whether it's homecomings, which are Black Baptist celebrations of communities returning to their home churches in these spaces. Um, Just capturing all of those, what historians would call intangible um, aspects of the history, can be done by studying physical space. For Estevan, the value he sees in place-based history is deeply connected to his own personal and family history. I grew up in a locale, a site where place matters. And I think that's true of anywhere. I mean, I often like to quote these days Archytas, who was commenting on Aristotle's categories about place as the first of all beings, since everything that exists in a place cannot exist without a place. This very notion of a place being characterized as a living being is something that resonates with how I grew up, with with a place where irrigation ditches were fed by the the rivers that were coming down from the mountains and the mountains were informed. Like it was, I grew up in a place that that felt very much alive and was alive. And and the, the connection between human beings and physical space, geography, the natural world and the built world really resonated. I mean, it, it's it's the way indigenous people are raised anywhere to recognize that there's the community, there's the hills, there's the mountains, the mountains connect to sky, and all of that matters. So I was raised understanding at a very deep visceral level why place matters. My five-year-old hand touching buildings that were not hundreds of years old, but thousands, like in a place like Taos Pueblo, a place 
that that was once called the roof of the the American continent. I mean, so I am I am so fortunate to have been raised in a in a place that was alive, that held meaning, and yet those places where I was raised have not necessarily figured into our American national narrative and consciousness. So I think I've spent my entire life sort of inserting the story of places into that. I, I'm also influenced by other writers like uh, Maori writer Linda Tuhui Smith, who writes, in order to decolonize our histories, we must revisit site by site. I often add to that event by event, story by story. You know, it's not enough to just say that we have to study place. We Yes, we have to study place and the importance, but we also have to pull back the layers of places to understand how they've been constructed, how they've been storied in the past by previous generations, by tourist makers or, or civic governments in you know, placemaking has been part of it, but it's also about how how we're invited to unmake those places and remake them and understand that bringing a critical understanding to that is why that really matters. You know, the idea of being specific, the idea of being place-based is so powerful. And the reason for that is simple. When you are within community and you're able to explore the history of a community, it doesn't feel like this, you know, it has a greater intimacy, I think is what I'm going for here. And that greater intimacy enables us to, again, see ourselves in the immediacy of that particular historical moment because it is our community. It's names that we may recognize. It's places that we may recognize as we think about the power of place. So this part hits home for me because my wife, who is not in the history profession, will never, ever read a history book, but she loves to go to historic sites. And anytime we travel, uh, we go to tons of historic sites uh, wherever we are. And I think that she is indicative of a large segment of the population that loves the three-dimensionality of physical spaces. It is exciting and invigorating and fun and interesting to see objects from the past and be able to imagine how they would have been wielded. It is interesting to walk on a grounds that has been preserved and explore it and learn about it. And it excites and captures the imagination in ways for some people that the two-dimensional page never will. So I, I love the richness and diversity of public history sites that we have in this country. There is so much to explore and so much to learn. And I love this idea of like doubling down almost on the specificity of place and the three-dimensionality of these types of public history experiences. I think that there is still so much potential to capture new audience and young learners in these settings. And again, that is happening across the country. And we have a responsibility to elevate and uplift that work as much as we can and connect people to it because there's so much good stuff going on. 
Lastly, we asked Susan, Estevan, and Naya to give our listeners some advice. For those of you listening who want to tell more inclusive, nuanced history, here's what they had to say. Something I find myself doing a lot is trying to empower the museums that I'm working with to interrogate their resistance to identifying someone for whom evidence suggests there was desire for people of both sexes or of the same sex or identifying gender ambivalence to ask themselves what that hesitation is all about. We do that all the time as historians. We have to (laughs) make the best analysis we can make given the evidence that we have. And then should additional evidence present itself down the road, then we then we reassess our analysis. It seems to me and to many other people that identify as LGBTQ that the unspoken assumption there is that it's the worst thing possible <laughs> to identify someone as LGBTQ if they were not, or if they were, you know, if they're not ancestor of what we understand now as LGBTQ identity, you know, that's understandable, like heteronormativity, the idea that heterosexuality is the norm and everything else is a deviation of some kind is all throughout our culture. Like we all grew up thinking that, but it does need to be interrogated because our visitors may be interrogating it or working through it. And so Staff needs to be prepared to talk about that and talk about the evidence that provided the analysis that came and, you know, freely admitting that there's a lot of moving parts and, (laughs) you know, and this is historians' best analysis at this time. But the potential of incorporating LGBTQ history is that it's a good avenue to get into the critical analysis that's involved in history, that we don't just have a document that says <laughs> what we're, what our question, that answers the question we have. We have to do all of the steps that is what makes history so exciting. I would say try it and try it again. One of the core values in my work is about experimentation and understanding why trying something and, and even failing that we learn so much from that. And so I would encourage practitioners, whether they're in a small historic site, larger museum, a library, or they're just a cultural center, to actually get outside of your walls. Get outside of your walls, go into a neighborhood, walk down the road. We've used the term outreach. All of the, even the language has changed. It's about engagement. It's about participation. But sometimes it literally takes you opening the door of your institution, walking into a neighborhood. But you also have to find where those experts live and the the people that can tell you about those places. Sometimes that's that's a little old lady that's sitting there who has actually just waiting for someone to come to her. Sometimes it's a young 20 year old hip hop artist who actually has embodied that wisdom of previous generations. So for me, it's never an older, younger divide. It's like, listen to the people in your community. Listen, lean in. I often, so these institutions are storytellers, right? 
my grandmother, one of the things that she taught me is the best storytellers are those who learn how to listen. And so that's what we have to do as practitioners. It's essential to insist that doing inclusive history is actually just doing history and doing history well. That instead of having a singular narrative of history, that we instead focus on a thick description, one where we have multiple people, multiple perspectives, multiple voices, and multiple sources that enable us to tell the fullest story possible, which is the most inclusive way to do history, right? It includes the enslaved community. It includes women who are often left out. uh, It includes indigenous people. And it includes those who have been marginalized from the practice, the professional practice of history. Reframing History is brought to you by the American Association for State and Local History. It is made possible through support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. To learn more about the project and read the report, please visit aaslh.org slash reframinghistory. We'd like to thank our partners on the project, including the Frameworks Institute, the National Council on Public History, and the Organization of American Historians. Thanks as well to our advisory committee and our guests. Our guests on this episode were Estevan Real Galvez, Naya Bates, and Susan Ferentinos. This series was written, edited, and produced by Hannah Hethman for Better Lemon Creative Audio, research and support by AASLH's John Marks. Again, I am Jason Steinhauer. And I'm Christy Coleman. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something you'll apply to your history communication toolkit, please let your friends and colleagues know so that this research gets shared as widely as possible. And on the next episode of Reframing History, Everyone wants to be involved in their community, they just always haven't been given the opportunity. So really when you're thinking about the idea of civic engagement, really expand your mind around it in terms of what does being civically engaged mean for certain communities and how does that manifest itself. We believe history is the first building block of civic participation. And the other piece of that is that no one institution alone can tell the full story of our history. I think the role of history institutions has to be vanguard example setting for the rest of us of what it looks like to take debates about our history, debates about what it is that we should be teaching or not teaching, and setting the example of how to do that in a grown-up way that is inclusive.